is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between. And we'd love to hear your stories. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. Frank DeVito was just a 19-year-old Coast Guard member and one of the first Americans to storm Omaha Beach in the Normandy region of France on June 6, 1944. This is a rare opportunity to hear firsthand an account of what happened that day. And be warned, this story might not be appropriate for young listeners or those who are sensitive to the often gruesome details of war. Listener discretion is advised. Well, we were very close in that family. I had two brothers and a sister. And we lived in a neighborhood like, like today. You know, the mall is four miles away. Get in the car and go to a mall. When we lived in Brooklyn, everything was a block away. If you wanted to go to a grocery store or, or a drugstore or anything like that, what you do is walk one block and everything was there for you. And then, of course, I went to a high school called Lafayette High School. It was a wonderful school. And I only put three and a half years in there. I, I left the high school in my senior year. I think we were, it must have been about 16 boys. We all, we all volunteered at the same time. Each one of us took a different, either Army or Navy or Coast Guard, whatever it may be. And... Uh, my mom, God bless my mother, she had three sons. My brother was in the army, and he went as far with in the third army, with Patton's army. He went into Germany. And of course, I did the Atlantic and the Pacific. And my kid brother, we were so happy that he missed the Second World War. Then the Korean War came along, and he volunteered to go into the Marines. He was in a chosen reservoir when the Chinese hordes came over the top. And luckily he survived, he was a BAR man. So my, my poor mother, she had three kids, all combat. I don't know how she did it. My mother was a very strong person. When Pearl Harbor happened, everybody was patriotic. Everybody wanted to go into the service and do their part. And, and I, I first started enlisting at 17, but my mom wouldn't sign for me. And I wanted to get in before the war ended. I, I thought in a year the, the war would end. I didn't know it was going to last four years. So I was anxious to get in. And I have no regrets. I've, I met some very, very wonderful people. And I lost a lot of people. When you go into the military, what they do... They break you down. The, the first day that you're in, either the master sergeant or the chief petty officer says, I want you to forget everything that you know up till today, because from today on, you're going to be military, you're going to do it our way. And it's very ironic because today a lot of kids are committing suicide. The kids from Vietnam and Iraq, and I, they, they, we're losing a lot of kids from suicide. And I think the reason is because when we went in the service, we did two or three weeks basic training, and they taught us how to be military. And when the war ended, 
They gave me a piece of paper and $86 and put me on a train and sent me home. I was a lost person. We were all lost. They broke us down to, to bring us into the service, but they didn't do anything to, you know, make it easy for us coming out. They should have like a basic training when you leave the service. That's why a lot of kids today, they come home and they're lost. The, the first time I had liberty, I remember I had liberty. I couldn't wait to go home to see my mom. I had two weeks. To, and I went there and the first day I was very happy. I saw my mom and my brothers and sisters. The next day my mom went to work. My, my kid brother went to school. My dad went to work. And there was nobody in my neighborhood my age because they were all in the service. And I was lost. I couldn't wait to go back to my ship. I was so happy to get liberty. And after two days, I was happy to go back. You know, a lot of people don't realize D-Day, they wrote a lot of books and a lot of movies about it. The whole D-Day was only 18 hours. We dropped the boats at 4 o'clock in the morning, and 10 o'clock at night, the beach was ours. It was only 18 hours, the whole thing. People make a big spectacle out of it, you know, D-Day, D-Day. It was 18 hours, that's all it was. But we did lose 2,000 men on the beach. I said men, I shouldn't say men. 2,000 kids. We were all kids. We were all kids. We were too young to drink. We were too young to vote. We weren't too young to die. 18 years old, 19, 20 years old, they were kids. Some of them didn't even shave, never shaved. Yeah. And, you, and you're fighting Germans that were in the war for four years. Some of them came out of Russia. They were seasoned. And with all that, the season, us 18, 20-year-old kids, we whipped their ass. Sorry, I shouldn't use that language. What I remember the most. I'm going to tell you a story. I don't tell it to anybody because it's so hard for me. On the first wave, my job was to drop the ramp. And the machine guns were hitting the ramp in the front of the ramp. But I knew when I dropped the ramp, the machine gun was going to come into the boat. But I had to drop the ramp because the troops had to get out. This is the first wave. So when I dropped the ramp, the Germans had 14 machine guns, MG-42 machine guns, capable of 160 rounds a minute. When I dropped the ramp, all those machine guns opened up. And in the front of my boat, seven, eight, 10, 15 kids, I don't know, they just went down like, like you're cutting wheat. And you're listening to the voice of Frank DeVita. And when we come back, you're going to hear more of this man's story and so many others who served in the biggest and most important war of all time. Frank DeVita's story here on Our American Stories.
we return to Our American Stories, we're listening to Frank DeVita's first-hand account of storming Omaha Beach on D-Day back in 1944 and 70-plus years later, remembering every emotional detail. When we left off, DeVita had opened the ramp on the front of his landing craft when the soldiers on board were struck with heavy machine gun fire from the Germans. Listener discretion again is advised. Here's Frank. Now, I was three-quarters of the way back because I had to take the ramp and drop the ramp. So I was three-quarters of the way back. So I had some protection because the kids that were in front of me, the troops that were in front of me, they absorbed the bullets that were supposed to hit me. And they were, they were falling down. And there was two kids, stragglers, I call them stragglers, they kept back because they didn't want to be in the front of the boat because they knew they would die. So they stayed back, and they stayed near me, which is a bad thing because besides the machine guns on the beach, there was a machine gun in the hill, and they were shooting down from the hill. So that was in a crossfire. And these two boys, since they stayed close to me, they were drawing fire to me. Now, the first boy was about four feet away from me. He got a machine gun in his stomach. His stomach was taken out of his. Luckily, that kid, somehow, he survived the war, even though his stomach was ripped open. The second kid, he was about two, two feet away from me. He wasn't so lucky. The machine gun took his helmet off and part of his skull. And he was crying, help me, help me, help me. And he fell on my feet. And I couldn't help him. I had no morphine. I had nothing to help him. So the only thing I could do, I started praying for him. Our Father who art in heaven. And I never finished the prayer. And it seemed to soothe him. He stopped, he stopped screaming, help me, help me, when I said the prayer. Then I reached down, and I, I touched his hand. I touched his hand because I wanted him to know he wasn't alone. What little strength that he had, he put his fingers around my thumb and squeezed my thumb. It was almost as if he was saying, it's all right, it's all right. But I knew he was going to die. And at that moment, he spit up blood, and he died. He died. He was a kid, probably 18, 19, 20 years old. He had red hair. He died right in front of me. And I, I went into shock, I'll be honest, I went into shock. He was just a little boy, just a little boy. <laughs> I went into shock and I passed out. And I, I came to, I don't know, maybe a minute, two minutes, I don't know how long it was. And, and when I passed out, when I came to rather, the coxswain was yelling, pick the ramp up, let's get out of here, because we were in a crossfire. 
and I pulled the lever and nothing happened. I pulled it the second time, nothing happened. I pulled it the third time, then I put it on automatic. It never came up. So my job now was to take that ramp. Every, everybody was depending upon me. So I had to get to the ramp. I was three quarters of the way back. I couldn't even see the ramp because there were dead bodies in front of me. So I had to crawl over the dead bodies. And I must have been a madman because I was crying. And I'm saying to these kids that are dead, forgive me for, for walking over you. And I started going towards the ramp and somehow another kid came along. I don't, to this day, I don't know who it is, either a crewman or maybe another soldier, I don't know. And we started crawling towards the ramp. And when we got towards the ramp, I realized why the ramp wouldn't come up. There was two dead soldiers on the ramp. They never got out of the boat. So they were waterlogged because they were on the ramp. Plus they had 90 pounds of, each soldier had 90 pounds of equipment on their back. There was no way I was going to move these, this guy. I weighed 125 pounds. I couldn't lift him up. So what I did, I pointed to his belt, to the other guy, and I grabbed the belt, and I started pulling. And when I pulled, he moved about two or three inches, and right then and there, I knew I could do this. I could do this. So I, little by little, by little, probably took 40 minutes, 30 minutes, I don't know. I got him off the ramp, and the ramp went up. Now the coxswain had to get the boat. There was all obstacles in the water. There was mines in the water. And we were right in the middle of them. And there was telephone poles. And the top of the telephone poles was the mine. Just sitting there, it wasn't, it wasn't nailed down or screwed down. It was just sitting on top of the telephone pole. If your boat nudged that telephone pole, the mine would come in your boat, killing everybody. Now, these were not an ordinary mine. These were telemines. A telemine, when they explode, they don't explode up. They explode sideways, take a man's legs off. So the coxswain, God bless him, he was so good. He got us, he got us out of this mess. And we headed back towards my ship. And we had a lot of boys that were wounded pretty bad. They were crying, Mama, Mama, Mama. And when we headed towards my ship, we, we saw this big white ship with a red cross on the side. It was a hospital ship. So instead of going towards my ship, we went towards the hospital ship because we figured if we can get some of these wounded guys aboard that hospital ship, Maybe we could save some lives. If we could save one life, it was worth it. So we pulled alongside the hospital ship, and two angels jumped in my boat. I called them angels because they did something we couldn't do. We were spent. We couldn't do anything. And what they did, they peeled off the dead soldiers to get to the wounded soldiers.
and they were able to get about seven. I don't remember exactly. Could have been seven, could have been eight, I don't know. And they, they got these wounded boys, and they put them in the hospital ship. And I said to myself, I said, thank God, these kids stand a chance. Maybe they're going to live this day. And with that, the two guys that were on the boat went back to the hospital ship. And we went back to my ship. When we got back to my ship, we still had wounded aboard. Not serious, but we had wounded aboard. And we had dead aboard the boat. And so when we got close to my boat, they dropped a sled so we could put the dead bodies and the wounded. And then the crane took them up. And somebody yelled, I want one man from every boat to come aboard to be interrogated. So I got on the sled and I went aboard. When I went aboard, I'm on the ship. Stay with me a minute, stay with me. I'm alive. I'm alive. And I gotta make a decision. Do I stay aboard the ship and let somebody take my place? Or do I go back into into the belly of the beast? I faced those machine guns again. And I said to myself, this is what I was trained to do. And I made 15 trips. They, they told me I didn't know that. They told me we made 15 trips with my boat. The PA-2628 made 15 trips. Do I stay on the boat and let someone else take my place, or do I go back into the belly of the beast? And my goodness, that that we had young men do this for us, for the world. It's just remarkable. When we come back, more of Frank DeVita's story, his recollection of Omaha Beach on June 6, 1944, here on Our American Stories. continue here on Our American Stories with Frank DeVita's story. By the way, if you have stories of loved ones or your own of any service in the war, any American war, send them to ouramericannetwork.org. This is why we're here and why we do what we do. So you can hear ordinary Americans' voices with us not getting in the way. And with that, let's return to Frank and his story. When we left off, his unit had taken a large number of casualties. After realizing the unit was caught in a crossfire, they were able to retreat and find a Red Cross hospital ship to help those who survived the attack. Let's continue. So then I had to be interrogated. It was a, a, a naval officer and a sergeant. He had a lot of stripes on him, great big sergeant. He put his hand on my shoulder. He said, son, that hand was like a hug. I needed a hug. 
and he touched me. And he says, son, he says, those machines can only fire so long, then they have to change the barrel. You wait. And when they're changing the barrel, that's when you drop the ramp again. So I said, all right. I said, how much time do I have? He said, seven to 10 seconds. That's not much time. But I did like he told me. And I waited and I waited. And while I was waiting, the troops aboard the boat started screaming, let the ramp down, we got to get out of here. They felt closed and they wanted to go out and be killed. <sighs> so I waited and I waited and I waited. And all of a sudden, there was a lull. They had to change the barrels. And I dropped the ramp. And this time I got eight guys on the beach. Of course, they were cut down immediately. I'd rather not go any further. For 70 years, I never mentioned it. My family, when we were on the beach with Tom Brokaw, and Tom Brokaw says to me, he says, I understand you have a big book with all pictures of the battles that you fought. And my son said, what book? I never told anybody anything. It was too hard to talk about. So somehow, Tom Brokaw, he got it out of me. He asked me a few questions. And once the genie was out of the bottle, you can't put it back. And then after that, I wanted to talk about it. And I go to seminars, I go to Columbine High School, and I talk to these young kids. I went to the USAA, the insurance company, and I talked to them. I wanted to get out now so they don't forget what we had to go through. We fought for peace. The Germans fought to kill, and we fought for peace. You know, we have a tendency in, in this country to put the young generation down. We got a great generation coming up. These, these kids are great. They're, smart. They're much smarter than I was, than all, all of us were. And I love, I love talking to them because they ask very pertinent questions. One of the kids asked me if I was killed during the war. <laughs> but other than that, they asked some very, very, very good questions. So I could see I'm getting through to them. About uh, three or four months ago, the church that I went to, that I go to, the Monsi, he knew that I was in the war. And he said, Frank, he says, how about talking to the congregation? So I said, all right. And the whole church was there. And I gave my spiel like I just told you and stuff like that. And then there was question and answers. And woman raised, one woman raised her hand and she said to me, why don't you write a book? And I thought about it. But I, I couldn't write it because while I'm writing, the tears would come down on the paper and I probably have a little blob of paper. So I decided not to write a book. So, but I will talk about it. I want to I get it out there so people don't forget. It's like the Holocaust. We should never forget. We should never forget. I can't understand how a group of educated people, the Germans, these people went to the opera. 
They took their kids to Sunday school. They went on picnics. These are not Mongolians. These were educated people. How could they do such a thing? How could they do such a thing? I, I, I still cry to this day. Many a nights I'm, I'm in bed, I can't sleep. And I think of that kid with the red hair and the side of his face was shot to the side away. He was a young kid. And I think of that kid. He was only one. There was hundreds around me that died or were wounded. But this one kid touched my heart because he fell to my feet. And he was asking me, help me, help me. I couldn't help him. I couldn't help myself. How could I help him? Well, I'm, I'm going to be 94 in May. So there's, there's not going to be any more Frank DeVitas. So we got to get the word out before we're gone. Because 10 years down the road, there's not going to be any Frank DeVitas or anybody that was in Normandy or Pearl Harbor or what. It's going to be forgotten history. So we shouldn't let it die. And again, that was Frank DeVita, and we will not let it die. And that's what we do here on this show, is preserve these memories and stories of the people and the events that made this country great. We fought for peace. The Germans fought to kill, Frank said. We fought for peace. Seventy years, I've never talked about it. It was hard to talk about it. But I want to get it out there so people never forget. And my goodness, when he was talking about the Germans, how could it happen that a country that produced opera and so many beautiful and remarkable things and so many inventions could do such a thing to other human beings? And by the way, when we think of World War II, we rightly think of the heroism of members of the U.S. Army, Army Air Forces, Navy, and Marine Corps too. But let's not forget about the Americans who served in the Merchant Marines, and as you've been hearing from Frank DeVita, the U.S. Coast Guard. Coast Guardsmen were involved in the war from the start. Half of the Coast Guard's personnel were deployed, manning hundreds of vessels supporting combat operations in every theater, from the Pacific to North Africa and to Europe. Coast Guardsmen escorted vessels across the U-boat-infested waters of the Atlantic and landed soldiers and Marines in amphibious operations, just like the invasion of Normandy. At Normandy, Coast Guardsmen manned transports and rescue craft along the beaches and landing men and vehicles, too. But Coasties also rescued 1,468 men who would have otherwise drowned in the surf. They fought and died alongside the men of our other military branches and were privileged to bring you one of their voices, U.S. Coast Guardsman and veteran Frank DeVita's story. And if you are a student of World War II or want to bring more people to an understanding of World War II, there's no better way than to just hear the stories from the men themselves. When you bring out the maps and you start to talk about history, it's one thing. And my goodness, no one does this better than the World War II Museum in New Orleans. You get a dog tag and you swipe it, and the next thing you know, you're walking in a soldier's, in a soldier's boots. There's the road to the Pacific, which is just remarkable. And then there's also the road to Berlin. They're two separate museums combined into one And it's just, well, you just have to get there. And by the way, if you can't get there, there's so much great stuff online. The World War II Museum, just Google it. And it is 
truly, I think, the very best museum in this country. And by the way, New Orleans is a heck of a city, too. So you make it a two- or three-day family trip, and you'll eat some great food, read and see some great history, and feel, feel the full impact of the stories that they've collected remarkably and beautifully. Again, at the National World War II Museum in New Orleans. Frank DeVita's story, here on Our American Story. Our American Stories, and this is the story of how a Florida couple kept seven siblings, four brothers and three sisters, ages 12 to 4, together that were separated throughout four different foster homes. Sophia and Deshaun Olds, both 33, got married in 2004, and they admit that as newlyweds, they were too busy with schooling and serving in the military, both veterans who served overseas in Iraq, to think about starting a family. This is the story of how one childless married couple of 13 years became a family of nine, literally, overnight. We thought like we would never, ever get adopted, but I thought this was like a really good blessing for us. I never actually had a mom and a dad under the same roof. But it feels great. It's like they both like a half of something, like peanut butter and jelly. Hello, I'm Deshaun Oz. And I'm Sophia Oz. And we would like to tell you about our process, our story of adoption. We have always wanted to adopt. We've been married for about 13 years now. And it had always been in our plans to adopt and to have biological children. We actually took the classes in 2006 and were preparing to adopt a child. However, we couldn't agree upon an age. So we postponed it, got busy with life, enjoying life, continuing in our careers in college, military, us traveling. We just were enjoying life. We were having a wonderful time together with family, with friends. I know a lot of people probably wonder and question why is it that they don't have biological children? It just never happened for us. In 2013, I took a pregnancy test and the test came back positive. And it was the scariest thing to me. I cried and I cried and I cried because I wasn't ready to be a mother. I know that being a mother is one of the most important jobs, number one, in this world. And I guess I felt like I wasn't ready to do that, that I couldn't be that yet. And a couple days later, um, I miscarried. It was confirmed by the doctors, and I had miscarried. 
And again, I felt another form of sadness because, you know, a, a child that we would have, we no longer would have. Even though we were early on in our pregnancy, it was it was still devastating for me. No, I hadn't felt the baby kick. I hadn't felt the baby move, but it was devastating. But again, we continued life. Also, we were very active in our local church. So we were active in, my husband is the youth pastor, children's church, ages what? Four to 12, always been a part of my life just to help out with children in the church. And I guess one thing, what we always did is that every time we gave our offering, we had on the back of it, um, adopted child on there. And then it was just no surprise that the story came out the day after Thanksgiving. And the day after Thanksgiving, what most people are doing is shopping. How we are shopping and we saw the story on Facebook, these seven children who needed a home. It was home for the holidays. And one scripture just came to my mind is that in my father's house there's many rooms and I go prepare a place for you. And in the Lord's Prayer, we do things on earth as it is in heaven. So we had a space to truly be, to open our home for seven children. And we knew that we had everything that these children needed. They needed a mother, a father. They needed stability, structure, discipline, with us having military. They needed love, they needed care. My husband being a teacher, me and being in social work, having those skills, the spiritual background, everything. We were just putting our whole hope and our whole trust and all of our, our dreams and our ambitions and our life in his hands. We were surrendering all when we decided to adopt our seven children. Yeah, and once we put our faith out there, it's amazing how God works it out. These students I've been serving at Rutherford High School, their parents came together and said, what can we do, what can we do? And they did everything from bringing furniture to build bunk beds to donate sports equipment to donate groceries. One parent is a farmer and truly just slaughtered a pig for us. So we have sausage, bacon, and everything else. And also, our families, a day hasn't gone by that they haven't asked us or given to us, whether it be snacks for the children to take to school, whether it be cooking up a big pot of Llama beans, helping out, cooking food, getting the children off the bus when we both have to work, picking oranges, whatever it is, any extra that they have had, anything that they could give, whether it be $5, we have had that outpouring from our families from both sides. We have had that from complete strangers that live thousands and thousands of miles away. It has been no stress, no struggle at all. And I do believe that that goes back to us doing the will of God to help build his kingdom, to provide a home for, as the Bible calls them, orphans. You know, that is something that the Bible states we should do. Yes, in James 127, it says true religion is to take care of the orphans. And we all know that it is more blessed to give than to receive if we were allowed to adopt these seven children, we would do it. We would work every day of our lives to make sure that they are cared for. 
And I think what's most important too is for them to see and to have an example of what it's like to have a father who is the head of the household, who has a strong faith and belief in God and who can teach them, who can lead the family. And I know that they enjoy that. I know that they feel privileged and proud to know that their dad is up there teaching them. You can see the smiles on their face and they enjoy talking about it afterwards. They ask lots of questions. Um, so that whole aspect has been wonderful to have him up front teaching our children um, about God, about the things that they should do in life to be saints, to be good children, to grow up, to be successful. Yep. And I like to just thank for my spiritual fathers because I do not have a biological father involved in my life. But my spiritual father, from my pastors to different men in my church, too, helped show me the way right there. And I could just use that to impart not only to my children, but all the children I minister to on a weekly basis. So I think it's important to know that in this story of adoption, I am not called to be a minister, to be behind a pulpit, to preach at a church, to be a pastor. But I know that this is my calling that God has placed in my life and I am embracing it, I am enjoying it. And that's why I can say that I am not stressed because it is something that we are doing that we are supposed to do. So it makes it so much easier. Does it require a lot from us? A lot of time, um, a lot of correction that we have to do, but it is also worth it, every part of it. This is what we're supposed to do in life. These seven children are our calling to be their mother and their father. And we take it just as serious as if um, it was a pastor over a church or a CEO over a business. This is us, a manager over a team. This is us. This is what we are called to do. And we give him all the praise, the glory, the honor for it, because without him, we would not be able to do this. And we are doing it. And that is our story. And what a story it was. And thanks, Greg, for doing that. And thank you, Sophia and Deshaun Olds, for recording that. And for doing what you did, it's an inspiration. People listening who are thinking about it, well, just do it. Fill that house up with love. They immediately adopted seven children who needed a home. And one's a teacher. Well, they didn't have the means, but they did it anyway. And look at the fruits of their love. And it was their faith, of course, the fruits of their faith. They just did it. They answered to a higher power. And by the way, NBC's Today Show, ABC News, Inside Edition, Miami Herald, Parents.com, and People, they all did this story but they somehow managed to leave the faith walk of this couple out of the story. And just a few things they said, and it was Sophia who said this, once you put your faith out there, it's amazing how God works it out. And in came the food, and in came the help from the family members, in came all that love. True religion is to take care of the orphans. And if more Christians in this great country did what this young couple did, my goodness, we could solve a lot of problems in our country. A lot of homeless problems, a lot of kids without parents. And we'll bring these adoption stories to you because they're beautiful, and hopefully 
They have some imitative power. That is, some of you listening may just decide to fill your home with some kids in need. This is Our American Story, Sophia and Deshaun Olds' story, and those seven kids they adopted, their stories too. is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. On March 7th of the year 2000, an American legend died, and our own Alex Cortez brings us a celebration of his extraordinary life. In the ongoing story of America's economic and business history, it happens again and again. One person with imagination and nerve gets an idea and develops into an industry and then into part of American life. And one man thought that every American should have television. Believe it or not, not too long ago, many outside of the largest cities didn't. They couldn't. In 1952, the year the Corvette came to life and David Hasselhoff was born, hills and mountains would get in the way of households in rural areas and small towns receiving the signals of what's called broadcast television, ABC, NBC, and the only handful of channels that existed then, which was TV rich, but is TV poor compared to today. Now imagine you have zero video products in your life, and that was the life of Bill Daniels until he said enough for all of us. Well, there's got to be a way that you can get television to small towns. I don't know what that way is, but there's got to be a way. That way? Cable TV. Antennas in our local areas that pick up television signals and then send them through long cables to each one of our homes. A lot of the public take it for granted because they were raised on it. Uh, I was not. It hit me. at the age of 32, and I thought, holy mackerel. Every community in America today gets as much or more television than New York, Chicago, or San Francisco, and ain't that something. Daniels also thought that it could bring everyone, even the supposedly TV-rich city slickers, more than the five to eight network and local channels that they had, with programming that was endless. You ain't seen nothing yet. You'll say the day you have 100, 200 channel choice of programming. Uh, some of the people say I wouldn't know what to choose if I had that many channels, but uh, God, it's just getting started. This vision and his dogged pursuit of it led him to be known by another name. The father of cable television. A man who's called the father of cable television. 
He was tagged with the title of father of the cable television industry. I think he basically was the dad that said, come on guys, here's where we're going and we're going to get there. I've been in the cable business for 40 years. A lot of people call me the father of cable television. I guess that's because I'm so damn old, but uh, <laughs> we have in our company, believe it or not, over the years, probably owned and operated more systems than anybody in the country. But growing up, Bill didn't have more of anything. We were a poor family. My dad sold life insurance to farmers during the Depression. Now that's tough, friends. <laughs> And let me tell you, hungry, no clothes. If you were went through the depression, it was a real incentive to a lot of us to say, God damn, someday I'm gonna do something about this. I'll never forget that I said to my dad once when I was ten years old, I said, Dad, when we grow up and get rich, can I have an old Henry bar? <laughs> uh, I can remember my dad taking their four children in our family down to have a nice cream cone. And that was a big deal to us. It was a nickel. And I was sitting next to my dad and I said, can I have two? He belted me <laughs> to try to teach me that I'd be lucky to have one. I graduated from my Navy fighter pilot training two weeks after Pearl Harbor. And it wasn't planned that way. People say to me, you know, you were a hero, you volunteered, you knew we were going to have a war. Baloney. I had no idea that was going to happen. My timing was bad in that case, so uh, I ended up uh, seeing a lot of action in World War II. And I think I'm like, like a lot of guys, uh, it rubbed off on me that I was going to be glad to get out of there alive. I was going to work hard and count my blessings every day that I was still walking around. And that's exactly what he did back at home and working in the family insurance business. If your ambition is to make money and to get a good job, I can't emphasize enough the way you handle yourself, how important it is. And regardless of where you are. When I first got out of the Navy, my dad had an oil insurance business and we're in a little town in New Mexico. Hobbs, New Mexico. You haven't lived till you've been there. <laughs> And I was a notary public, how do you like that? And every time I signed my name to a piece of paper, I got a quarter. A guy walked in almost one day with khaki clothes on, and he had 20 documents he wanted notarized. I notarized every one of them, he said, what are you? Now 20 times 25, I think that had been five bucks that I made. And I said, nothing, sir. Hey, we're happy to have you in our city. Come back any time, let me know what I can do for you. Thank you, appreciate that. A guy walks in my office about three years later, three-piece suit, and he by that time owned seven drilling rigs, and he laid the insurance account on my lap and said, I want you to write the insurance on this. And over a two-year period of time, my brother and I, my dad had died in the meantime, about $600,000 in insurance premiums into our little company. What's the point of the story? I said to the guy, why are you giving me the business? He said, I came in here three years ago and you notarized some papers for me and you didn't charge me. And you couldn't have been nicer and more polite. You never know. 
You never know. And what a good lesson to learn about almost anything in life. And it's sometimes you're helping somebody who will one day help you, but that's not why you did it. And when we come back, we're going to learn so much more about the unlikely father of cable television, Bill Daniels. And by the way, in World War II, this Navy fighter pilot fought at Midway, Guadalcanal, and the invasion of the Philippines. He saw real action. And by the way, he was called back to duty for the Korean War II. When we come back, this remarkable American story, Bill Daniels' story, here on Our American Story. And we continue here with our American stories and with the story of the unlikely father of cable television, Bill Daniels. Let's continue the story. In 1952, Daniels was driving from New Mexico to Wyoming, where he was starting an insurance business. And when he stopped in a Denver bar for a meal, he saw something that he had never seen before. I was 32 before I ever saw television. I saw it in Denver in a bar prize fight and I happened to be a prize fight fan and uh, when I first looked at it I thought what an invention that is picture and sound into a home at the same time I couldn't get over that and my reaction was wow that is some invention and I look forward to seeing more television when I get to Capitol Wyoming but he got there and there was no television I thought there's got to be a way that you can get television in a small town. I don't know what that way is, but there's got to be a way. So I went to work on the project and got it done. Being the first to use microwave technology to relay a broadcast signal. And according to his colleague Gene Schneider, those early days were precarious. We were taking in $1,500 a month, and we were spending about 15000 but the Casper Cable system they built soon won the business of 4,000 subscribers, one-third of the area's homes. I was the president of our National Cable Television Association, the second president, and there were about 500 systems in the country. And I had people calling me saying they either wanted to buy a cable system or sell one. And I'd put buyers and sellers together. Would not take a fee because I didn't think I could because... In my view, I was president of the National Trade Association. I didn't think it was proper. No. Students, there's integrity. But a light went up over my head. And I said, there's a business here. I think it can be a hell of a business. And it did become a hell of a business. Here's the later president of Daniels and Associates, John Seaman. He was the only one doing that. You know, this was too small for Wall Street. So it was primarily Bill and his persona that were causing whatever few deals were being made to happen. But that doesn't mean that things were easy. They weren't. Here's John on telling his employer that he was leaving to work for Bill 
and the credit report that they ran on him. It was horrible. I mean, it was just horrible. <laughs> the, the debts way exceeded, so Bill's lying about, they tell me I'm a millionaire, was purely part of the hype and the persona that he had created anything but true. But yet, he had made such an impression on me that it didn't matter. I thought, here is a true leader in an industry. Whether I know, I didn't know much about the industry, I didn't know its potential, I didn't have its vision, but this guy did, and I thought, I'm going to be way better off hitching my wagon to him than I am staying where I am. So the fear of this guy is in danger of not being able to pay his bills for whatever reason as a young guy with a family didn't have a negative effect on me. But those were very difficult times. Every two weeks was a payroll challenge. The business was very unpredictable. The brokerage side of the business was feast or famine. You could work a long time on a transaction and it wouldn't close. So you'd have a lot of travel and other expenses associated with trying to get the engagement and complete it. And at the end of the day, you could end up with nothing in the basket. Here's Bill on a secret sauce for taking on these challenges. Just to, uh, to give you my credentials, uh, you're looking at a guy who has very little formal education. I have never had an IQ test, so I don't even know what my IQ is. I'm afraid to take it, by the way. And I never thought I was very smart, and I still don't. My business career has been successful because I've hired good people. And I know my faults. And as you go through your practice in business, the sooner you recognize that your weak points and cover those positions with competent people, the better off you'll be, believe me. Bill survived and thrived, but his competition in network and local TV were used to having no competition and tried to use the force of government to make he and Cable goners. We went along for about five years, and uh, we weren't a very exciting business, but we had a monopoly. And we uh, provided something the public wanted at a fair price. After about five years, we served about two million subscribers nationwide. Today, we serve almost 60% of the homes in the country. But let me list for you the people after five years thought that we were a threat to them and the enemies that we had in the cable television business. How's this for a lineup? ABC, CBS, NBC, AT&T, local television stations, the Federal Communications Commission, the Congress, including both the House and the Senate, all the lawyers in Washington, D.C., the represented broadcasters, most city governments, most county governments, and most state governments. Now that's pretty tough, isn't it? <laughs> My attitude at that time, I was about 30, Two, thirty-three along in there. Well, now wait a minute. If all of these people are busting their to stop our business from succeeding, you know we must have some. <laughs> if we didn't, 
that they could care less about us, right? He often wrote letters to congressmen and others about pending regulations and say things like, I didn't go off to fight a battle in the Pacific to fight for the country's freedoms, to have you throw in a bunch of regulations that make it impossible for me to do business. He had great intuition. He looked at every opponent as an opponent that we could ultimately win over as opposed to one that we had to destroy. And I think that was a unique characteristic about Bill. He, in, in the very early days when the cable industry was fighting its big battles with broadcasters, Bill regularly read Broadcasting Magazine. He regularly communicated with people who were accomplished and recognized in Broadcasting Magazine. Bill, even though the broadcasting industry were basically our enemies trying to do us harm, Bill would take that picture from Broadcasting Magazine, have it mounted on a plaque, shellacked with the guy or gal's name on the bottom of it, the date of the publication, and he'd send him a note. Congratulations. It didn't make any difference whether this guy was president of NBC or, you know, an engineer in Sacramento. If they were on that back page, Bill was going to send them a note and they were going to get a plaque. So Bill was engaging the enemy while many were trying to destroy the enemy and they were trying to destroy us. As a result, I think Bill had an entree that made it very possible for us later on to play a big role in bringing broadcasters, newspaper organizations into the ownership of the cable industry and come into the tent as opposed to be outside as our enemy. To put it mildly, Bill's Big Tent won. Here's NBC. And Daniels, the perfect marriage broker, the man who did much to connect the nation from Nebraska farmhouses to Park Avenue penthouses. Two-thirds of American homes now are wired for cable. Here's Bill with his colleagues at Daniels & Associates. To all of you who have made this company such a success, I really appreciate it. A company is people. People make the company. I don't make it. The product doesn't make it. The people make it. And I just want you to know I'm awful damn proud of all of you. And you've been listening to the voice of Bill Daniels. And my goodness, so many Americans got to enjoy television across this great country because of cable and now are enjoying internet services. And my goodness, the type and quantity of content that Bill probably couldn't have imagined even in the year 2000. It's been so remarkable what's happened in the area of content and content delivery in this country. And when we come back, we'll continue with more of the story of Bill Daniels. And my goodness, him saying a company is people is so true. And a man with great intuition and great integrity knew that his greatest decisions were in the people he chose and how he took care of them. When we continue more of the life of the father of cable television, Bill Daniels, here on Our American Stories.
And we continue with our American stories and the story of Bill Daniels, who brought the wonderful world of cable television, well, to all of us, and was richly rewarded for doing so. Let's return to his story. I guess it's kind of like if you go to heaven, you'd believe in there's religion on earth. (laughs) And I've been so lucky and so successful that I have to be a champion, I guess, of the free enterprise system. Uh, But I've studied other governments. You know, I've been to Russia. Uh, If all people in this country have to do is go to a foreign country that is either socialistic or a dictatorship or communistic, and then you really appreciate the free enterprise system. You live in a marvelous country. I've said many times, the eighth wonder of the world is a free enterprise system. And the ninth wonder of the world is so few people understand it. Here's John Seaman. So Bill loved the business of business. He loved being an entrepreneur. And he loved the free enterprise system that enabled entrepreneurship to be successful. While entrepreneurs are in vogue today, 30 years ago, not so much so. But since you're in this class, let me name a few early entrepreneurs. Henry Ford went busted a couple times. Walt Disney went broke before he got going. Arm and Hammer bought an oil company for a tax shelter. And what happened? They discovered oil. King Gillette. King Gillette invented the Gillette Razor. The first year he sold 57 razors, but an entrepreneur. And God love him, the entrepreneur of all time, Ray Kroc. Good friend of mine made a statement that I dearly love. He was so motivated and so ambitious. And somebody said to him one day, Ray, the country is becoming too saturated with McDonald's. He says, my <laughs> saturation is for sponges. <laughs> I had no money as a kid. I didn't have any money when I started. And uh, I don't think money is everything. But by the same token, I think my biggest uh, my biggest accomplishment is my success in my business, and I hope that I can continue to share my good fortune with others. To quote that, uh, that I've used so many times, they don't have luggage rack on hearses. You can't take it with you. And uh, while I'm alive, I want to have some fun with my giving, and uh, it's fun to pick your charities while you're still kicking and uh, can watch people uh, enjoy and share with me my good fortune. Here's the former president of Daniels and Associates, Tom Marinkovich. Bill was one to give people second chances, and there's a lot of uh, examples of that. The ones I keep running into uh, and, and remembering really was all the young people that he put through colleges and that he gave jobs to. And he did this off the cuff. Whenever Bill saw an opportunity to help someone who deserved an opportunity but didn't have one, This wasn't a formal scholarship program at all. And that led to some interesting problems. In fact, at times that presented me a problem because I was trying to get the budgets organized and I've had to be a little tough on people about adding people. And all of a sudden, Bill would come in with two or three new young people and he wouldn't take no for an answer. And uh, 
he ultimately helped those young people and he checked on them and he made sure they were responsible for their academics and their job performance after they came aboard. After Bill passed away, he left $1 billion to his foundation, the Daniels Fund, which has already given away nearly a billion. And one of their signature programs is a more formal scholarship program. Here's John Seaman speaking before the new class of Daniels scholars in 2017. I'm told over 2,000 applied for the Daniels scholarship this year. 482 made it to the interview process. 235 were awarded Daniels scholars. Just a reflection on cost of education today and the value of this scholarship. Depending on the school and other factors, four years of college today is going to cost approximately $150,000. If you finance that amount based on the federal student loan rate, you would be paying back 1,000 a month for 30 years. So as I look out on those of you who are here tonight with these scholarships, I say congratulations because you've won the lottery. However, what you've done is better than the lottery, and the reason is because the lottery is strictly blind luck. You, on the other hand, because of the characteristics that are defined by the Daniels Scholarship Program, through your character, leadership, and community service, you came by your scholarship honestly. Congratulations to all of you. Here's Bill on his experience that inspired another extracurricular activity. I got to tell you, folks, I've been throwing out of more banks than anybody in the world. <laughs> My first visit to a bank was after World War II, and I was 25, and I had never been in a bank. I wanted to buy a car, and my first visit to the bank. I felt like I was either going in for brain surgery or the defendant in a murder trial. Banks are intimidating. Wouldn't it be nice when a young person is 20 years old and just graduated from college or 21 and already have good credit on his own? Well, why not give them an opportunity at a young age to learn more on how to deal with a bank? Bill's idea was to create a bank that's only for young Americans. But that meant getting the approval of government regulators. It sounds like a simple, wonderful idea. And by tomorrow morning, if we all got our heads together, we ought to be able to have a bank up and running. But it didn't work that way. And it seemed like every step that Bill took ended up being a no. But for many of us that know Bill well, no many times is looked at as a sign of encouragement to Bill. <laughs> So I think, they, I think they like us. So in any event, the bank opened with great fanfare. Here's Linda Childers, the founding president of Young Americans Bank, on the over 91,000 accounts that have been opened. Bill would just be so proud of that. He would just get tickled. He would come into the bank lobby and just kind of sit in the back of the bank and watch kids do their business, and it was such a kick to him to see this, and especially if they wanted to start a business, 
you know, he really loved to hear about their business, their business plans, and how he could be helpful to them. And we've been listening to the story of Bill Daniels. And Bill's foundation, the Daniels Fund, is sponsoring this great story as part of their celebration of his 100th birthday this year and the 20th anniversary of the foundation. They focus on Colorado, New Mexico, Utah, and Wyoming, the four states that most affected Bill's life. And in addition to the Daniels Scholars and Young Americans Bank that you heard about, the foundation makes grants to nonprofits in areas like ethics, youth development, education reform, addiction, and amateur sports. And you can learn more about their work at danielsfund.org. And while there, also pick up an incredibly beautiful book on Bill's life that has so much more to offer on this profoundly American story. And my goodness, that Bill Daniels created all these jobs, got TV into the houses and homes of people across this country, not just the people in the big cities, but doing what Sam Walton did, too, because Sam Walton was able to bring lower prices to people on every variety of product and service uh, through Walmart, and we brought you his terrific story. And this only free enterprise can do. It is truly the eighth wonder of the world, as Bill said, and it has lifted so many people out of poverty and given us all the goods, products, services, and innovation that only free enterprise can drive and deliver. And when we come back, more of the life of this incredible American story, more about Bill Daniels and his life story here on Our American Story. And we continue with the final portion of Bill Daniels' extraordinary life story. In the 1980s and 90s, Bill gave over $22 million to what became the Daniels College of Business at the University of Denver. And he insisted that ethics and etiquette be a mandatory part of the curriculum. The reason I did is, uh, first you got, all you got to do is read the Wall Street Journal every morning. And you'll see what's going on in some of the higher financial circles of our country. Uh, this, and that disturbs me. And the second reason is I've been fortunate and I've interviewed probably 100 young men and women in this company who are MBAs, and I've been amazed that while they have technical skills, they're well-educated technically, what little they know about what goes on in the real world. I have a great nephew that graduated from Harvard Business School uh, about three years ago now in my employ, and I asked him one day if, at the Harvard Business School, if there were any courses on ethics and integrity. No. I then checked with Stanford University. No. I then checked with the other hotshot schools, Dartmouth, Yale, and I think uh, Wharton, I'm not sure else. None of them offered a course in ethics and integrity. And the Daniels Fund has since expanded Bill's ethics initiative and are partnering with more business schools, law schools, high schools, police departments across the country, and an online case bank that anyone can access, reaching a total of more than one million Americans so far. With heavy emphasis on ethics, integrity, manners, 
communicating with people, answering your phone, answering your mail, treating everybody in your company with decency, treating your fellow man with decency, giving back to your community. Now that's a pretty big order. And Bill just didn't talk a big game. He lived it. And even when he had nothing to his name, here's the president of the Daniels Fund, Linda Childers. So after Bill returned from the military, he moved to the state of Wyoming and started working in the insurance business. And he sold a policy to a warehouse owner. And Bill was proud of himself. It was a great, a great deal. And went on down the road. And I think it was about a year later, there was an accident at the warehouse and someone was killed. And they filed the claim. And Bill was horrified to find out that the reinsurance company had declared bankruptcy. And he felt that his integrity was on the line because he'd sold that policy. But there was nothing to be paid from the insurance company. So Bill Daniels, as a young worker, paid that claim himself. The claim was $12,000. Bill paid that $500 a month by juggling his finances to make that work. It was more than he made, but it was important to him that his word was as good as gold. He was going to make that straight because he was then square with himself. That's who he was, and that's what mattered to him and his reputation. And I think with Bill, it, it wasn't that he said, I'm going to be honest and, and I'm going to do these things here because it's going to have long-term payoff. I think when he was a young man, he just did it because it was the right thing. And somewhere along the line, he said, wow, this is working pretty well for me. <laughs> My reputation really does matter in the cable business. I had to take bankruptcy with a basketball team that I owned in the state of Utah. It was the Utah Stars, we were the league champions, Times were tough, and my bank shut off my credit. So uh, I had to get all my players together, all my staff, and said, we've got to shut her down. And I was miserable, let me tell you. I was crying, and I was on the 10th floor of the Travel Inn in Salt Lake City, Utah. And my lawyer is a graduate of this fine institution, a guy named Bob Nagel. And I said, Bob, I'm so heartbroken, I'm going to jump out the window. He said, Bill, the luck you're having, you're going to live. <laughs> now, the reason I tell you the story is I had temporarily stiffed citizens in Salt Lake City for $750,000 for season tickets that they'd been paid for and no more ball games, and we owed creditors, and that bothered the hell out of me. About six years later, I went. I made a couple deals. I went back to Salt Lake City, and I paid every creditor with interest of 8% since the date I shut them down. And boy, did I feel good about that. I really felt good. Now, the moral of that story is today, some 18 years later, I meet people in all over the country that say, aren't you the guy that paid off the season ticket holders in Salt Lake City? And I say, yes, that's me. Now, what I'm saying to you is I did not think that was such a big deal at the time. I just didn't want to have to live with myself. What I'm telling you as future lawyers and business people is that's a case of examples of ethics and integrity that come back to you that you never dreamed would come back to you. It sure isn't the reason I went over there. I went over there because I had to look in the mirror in the morning when I shaved. Don't get the impression that I'm an angel. I'm far from it. And Bill wasn't joking. Here he is with refreshing honesty about his flaws. You know, uh, 
in my world of business, you got to get along with people. You got to have a sense of humor. You got to be able to make fun of yourself. So let me take three minutes and say to you that while the introductions are nice that Steve gives me, we've all got skeletons in our closet. I'm sure all of you are perfect, but when I finish, you'll know that I'm the kind of a guy that lays it on the line, so let me tell you a few things that it does not say on my resume, uh, but it'll tell you one thing about me, I'm honest. Uh, I have a long-term relationship with the Colorado Motor Vehicle Department and the uh, Colorado State Highway Patrol and the same in California where I spent a lot of time. Uh, I lost a governor's race in the state of Colorado. Uh, I lost five million dollars in the professional sports business. I have been married and divorced four times. Uh, I lost five hundred thousand dollars on a Ferris wheel for cars. <laughs> which I thought was the greatest invention of all time. You drove the car on this thing and it rotated this way and it saved ground space was a hell of a deal. I thought. I met guys that said, I've never made a bad deal in my life. Well, let me tell you something, folks. When somebody says that, they've never been in many deals. Because uh, those of us who are in and out of speculated deals all the time, we've lost a bundle. Uh, I'm a recovering alcoholic. I'm a graduate of the Betty Ford Center in uh, Rancho Morales, California. Uh, I met a drink uh, a year April the 2nd. Uh, I've made and lost several fortunes, uh, but i got to tell you I've had a ball. My brother went to Harvard, incidentally, and I'm not bragging about that. I have virtually no education, but when people compare myself and my brother, <laughs> I told my brother went to Yale and I went to jail. <laughs> the reason I do is because I have been in jail four times and I was picked up for drunken driving on four different occasions in California and it was at that time that I made up my mind that I had too many things left in my lifetime to let alcohol get the best of me. Here's John Seaman. I can't tell you how many times I heard him either in public statements or in letters, or in conversation with people, say, my primary goal is I want to go to heaven. Well, you don't think of Bill as a religious person. I've never thought of Bill as a religious person. But there's, a, there's an instinct there that defined Bill as a very unique person to be so conscious at all times of that being his primary goal. When you put your life in perspective, you realize how little time there is to make something truly significant out of your life. To some people, this might mean acquiring a lot of possessions. To others, building a business or owning property. And there are those whose lives wouldn't be fulfilled unless they achieve fame and fortune happens to be my personal belief that what you live that others can benefit by and what you're able to teach the younger generation if you leave your life that way you leave this world with a clear conscience 
and you might even have a smile on your face. And great job, as always, to Alex, and a very special thanks to the Daniels Fund for providing so much of the source material. What a life lived. Integrity, we hear a lot about. We hear about intuition, free enterprise. And by the way, integrity is is not just a business proposal. It's a way of life. And in the end, if you're doing it because you think you'll get something back, it's a real bad reason to do it. And Bill understood that from an early age, making sure that that life insurance policy got paid out, making sure those ticket holders, well, that they got paid too. Also, the honesty of this guy sharing what he shared with an audience over a three-minute period, failed marriages, struggles with alcohol, it just makes him that much more real and that that much more of a powerful story, not glossing over the realities of life and the failures of life. But in the end, wanting to get to heaven is his primary goal, and that distinguishes him from so many people that run businesses. More, I wish, had that stated claim. Bill Daniels' story, the father of cable television, a classic American story, if ever there was one, here on Our American Stories. 